but it was this suit that you could wear to lose weight. And so uh, she said, hey, I bought us suits so we could lose weight. And I'm thinking, well, Paula, you don't need a suit to lose weight, and I just need to lose maybe three pounds. But I'm not sure about that. I said, what is it? She said, well, it's a surprise. So we got the suits in, and we opened them up, and they were plastic, almost a little bit better than plastic bags, but not much more than that. And then they had a they had a little portal in the side, and you, <laughs> I know some of you are looking at me really strange. It was too good to be true. It had a little portal on the side, and you hooked it up to the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> and you know. I had a word of knowledge now. The only people in this room that I could think that would do this would be Gary and Becky Adams. <laughs> now, now, Gary's with Jesus, but you know that this would be true. And, and they gave you exercises <laughs> to do. And so Paula said, okay, put your suit on. Well, she paid for it, so I put the suit on. And I'm telling you, she had her suit on, I had my suit on, but she'd only we only had one vacuum cleaner, so we could only go one time, one at a time. And we laughed like the three stooges. We laughed. Well, my suit lasted about a minute and a half before the whole thing just ripped. It just ripped apart. If it's too good, sounds too good to be true, it usually is. There are some things that sound too good to be true and some things that you cannot afford to be wrong on. And what if both of these things are the same issue? What if they're the same issue? You cannot afford to be wrong on it, but the very same issue is that it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. How a person can be forgiven of their sins and they can come to walk in a personal relationship with God. I want to talk to you about that from the Bible this morning. We've been going through the seven statements of Jesus when he was on the cross or on the fifth saying, God's plan for every Christian is to tell every person about this incredible gift of forgiveness and new life that they can have, that they can have a clear conscience, they can be forgiven, and they can have the very life of God indwelling in them. Uh, we call it the Great Commission. That expression is not used in the Bible. A commission from God that is greater than all others. I heard one someone say, I never forgot it, that the Great Commission, listen to me, the Great Commission is actually the Great co Mission is something meant that we're to accomplish together. One of the places it's given to us and is in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. When Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Now I want you to notice there, and this is not my text, but I just want to highlight a few things there, that we're not to wait on lost people. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that we sequester ourselves inside the church and we wait on them to come to us. The Bible says that we, we go to them. That's the commission. The Bible says in Psalm 126 and verse 6, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Some people say, well, preacher, I, I don't have a burden. Well, if you, the Bible says, He that goeth forth and weepeth. The weeping comes after you go. The concern comes after you go. And we go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. We go to every corner, every street, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every kindred. And the Bible says we take the message of Jesus. We take the gospel, the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ. It's not a political message. It's not a social message. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's going to heal our nation and heal the world's ills is not a politician, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not not a political commercial, it's not a political party, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. These seven statements, we're on the fifth one. It's it's so rich and so filled with truth. I I was with a pastor... uh, uh, back in March, and he said, what are you preaching through? I said, well, I'm on, on the seven statements. You know me very well. And, and he said, well, are, are you just going to preach on all, all those in one one sermon? I literally, I, don't don't mock me, please. I'm wounded today as it is. I, I don't need that. I, I laughed out loud, too. I said, oh, no, no. I I probably will get an introduction to just one one of those sermons out. But it's not wrong to do that. You probably wish I would. But I said, no, I won't be able to do that. There's too much gold to mine there. But there are three truths in this text. And we've given one of the dominant truths. I want you to look with me in John chapter 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, saith I first. That is the fifth statement. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop. That's a a little scrawny uh, stick, about three or four feet long. And uh, they put it to his mouth. That means a cross was probably not elevated very high. Uh, because of, of how long we know how the hyssop was a bush, it wasn't a tree. So because of that, we know the cross are probably not elevated very high. And they put it to his mouth. Verse 30, here's a sixth statement. We will not deal with this today. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, the first truth we spoke on is in verse 28, on the obedience of Jesus. That Jesus was fully obedient to the will of God. The Bible there says He fulfilled the Scripture. He knew that all things were accomplished. And we talked about the word 
accomplished and how that he knew he was aware and how that the spirit, small s, the attitude of a Christ follower is one of obedience. He wants to fulfill God's commands. He's concerned. She's concerned with the will of God and that you will have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ in you to want to be obedient. And we see that uh, you get the heart of Jesus from the heart of his cross. But today I want us to look at this, not only the obedience of Christ, but we see here the suffering of Jesus. The suffering of Jesus. Now ordinarily, when we talk about the cross, that's what we focus on. But in order, listen carefully, in order for Jesus to suffer, he had to have a body, and for him to have a body, he had to be a human. God is a spirit. He does not have a body. And Jesus came as God, but he came to become a man so that he could be our substitute and die in your stead, in your place, for the world's sins. But in that process, he not only died, but he, he suffered. He hurt. It involved pain. The will of God involved pain and suffering. I want you to notice there's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. The Bible says, Though he, speaking of Christ, were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, Jesus didn't need to learn to obey because he was rebellious. But the idea of learn has the idea of experience. Jesus needed to experience obedience. And the only way you can experience something and to learn about obedience as a human because he was God was to go through it. And for him to experience this level of obedience, which was the cross, which was the death, listen carefully, it involved suffering. And for, for all of us, at some point in the will of God, in your marriage, in your job, in your church life, it's going to involve suffering. I talked to one of our, our precious men this morning, and I could, I could tell he was tired. He had a bad week. He had some adversity. He had some difficulty. And, and, and your life is not easy. God never promised you were going to have an easy life. That's why he came here to die for you. Not only to pay for your sin debt, but to understand what the will of God looked like. Because God could not understand what it was like to be a human. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he did this yet without sin. He never sinned. But he understood what it meant to suffer Yet he were a son, yet learned, he experienced obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned suffering. He was enrolled in the school of adversity at Calvary and also during his lifetime, but especially in the context, if you study Hebrews 5, it's about Calvary. The most horrific form of execution was crucifixion. And they would take those spikes and and put them in their hands and their feet. 
and it would uh, sever the nerves and, and cut the nerves. And not only did they do that to him, they pressed the crown of thorns into his brow. There are more capillaries in your in your head and your forehead than anywhere in your body. And he bled and, and all over. It, it was a bloody mess, if you will. They scourged him. At the end of this, this whip, there were pieces of bone and metal. And I've always kind of illustrated this way that it was like, like fish hooks. And these, listen, professional executors, as they came up and they, and they lifted that whip up and, and, and pulled it around. These guys knew what they were doing. It would wrap around the torso of our Lord and it would embed itself into his skin and they would pull it out. Now, the Jews were under their law where they can only do it 40 times. But they so adhered to the law that they would only do it 39 times to make sure they didn't cross the threshold. And some have wrongfully said that Jesus was hit 39 or 40 times. But Jews weren't doing this. The Romans were. They were not under Roman law. And so many men that experiences were literally disemboweled. And that means that the muscles were separated from their stomach and, and their, their intestines literally spilled out and they died on the ground. And when they put him up there, he was already suffering. But when a man died from, from being on the cross, it wasn't from... The pain, it was from asphyxiation. He couldn't breathe. And so they had a little pedestal there to put their feet. And it it was all about torture. And they couldn't breathe and their lungs would, would be denied air. And then they would have to push up on that pedestal to inhale some air. And then they would rest themselves and then push up again. But listen, every time they had to push up, All of those nerve endings spiked out with incredible electronic, electrical responses of incredible pain all through through his body. That's why the Roman soldiers came to the Lord Jesus and they were going to break his legs. That was a tradition. And some men stayed there for days, and some it was recorded for weeks, the hardiest of them. Because when they broke their legs, they couldn't push up anymore, and they would finally lose their air and die. But he gave up, the Bible says he gave up the ghost. No man killed him. He, he yielded his spirit on his own. It's at the cross. Listen, at the cross, we discover sin's payment. Required punishment and suffering. I want to make that statement again. I want you to get it. I want you to get it in your heart. At the cross, we discover that sin's payment required punishment and suffering. And we get that here in John nineteen twenty eight, when the Bible says that Jesus thirsted. He thirsted. God didn't have a body. He had a spirit. But Jesus took on a body. Our great God took on a body. And on the cross, 
He suffered and that is embodied. All his suffering is embodied literally and metaphorically in those two words. The shortest of the statements, I thirst. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, for as much then as, so here's a comparative statement, as the children, speaking of uh, us as people, are partakers of flesh and blood, we have bodies. He also compares to Christ. Likewise, took part of the same. He took flesh and blood, except his blood was pure. He was virgin born. We get our our blood from our Father. You are a sinner because your bloodline came from your Father. I don't have time to, to go into this right now. But his bloodline came from his Father. Got his body from his mother. That, in order that, through death, Jesus might destroy. doesn't mean annihilate, to do away with the devil, but it means to render inoperative. It's like a boxing match. And one boxer knocks the other out. He's still there, but he's, he can't fight anymore. He renders inoperative him that had the power of death. That is the devil. You've been through as much death as I have. I, From the time I was a little boy, I experienced uh, perhaps more death than the average person. 51 years ago this morning, I was thinking as I was sitting there a little bit praying over the service, and it hit me 51 years ago this morning at 8.30 when my mom roused me. I was sleeping on the couch in our living room on 612 Marguerite Drive. I said, your grandfather's dead. Her father, my grandfather. I love my grandfather. I was named after him. His name was Richard. And she took Melanie and Hoss and myself over there. And I stood and looked down into the den and I saw his head laid back from a massive heart attack. And it was... Labor Day weekend on a Saturday morning. And uh, it, it was a, a horrible thing. And, and from that, dominoes begin to fall in my life. I don't have time to go into that. But a lot of open graves. And it shaped my life for the work that I was going to be in. It gave me a very tender heart for people that that go through that not knowing that in other ways I would face that myself, as all, all people do. The Bible says in Hebrews 2.15, And deliver them who through fear of death. I was reading in the book of Job this past week how that death is called the king of terrors. The king of terrors. Jesus came to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, to fear. For verily, Jesus took not on him the nature of angels. Angels have bodies, but angels cannot be saved. Jesus did not die for angels. But he took on him the seed of Abraham, that is a, a, the body of a Jewish man. And it was without sin. 
The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign, a miraculous sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now that's the miracle. Now if you're holding a Bible today, you probably don't, but some people do. And it says a, a maid or a young maid. Some versions say that. The Hebrew word there is a virgin. That's not true to the text. By the way, what kind of a sign is a young maid conceiving? That's not a, that's not a miraculous sign that happens not just every day, but hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times a day. The sign, the miracle, is that a virgin should conceive and bear, and bear a son. This was Mary's son, but shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was a human, but he was God, and he was God with us. He was the Son of God, God the Son, and the Gospel of Luke calls him the Son of Man. He identified with us. This grips my heart. He became like us. And he walked like us and he experienced pain. John chapter 1 and verse 14, therefore the Lord, I'm sorry, John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled. The glory of God was upon him. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three times in John 1, 1, the word, word was used to describe Jesus. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh. Well, speaking of Jesus, I can remember when I was a little boy, preachers would get excited about it. And they would talk about the Word. We sing the Christmas song, of Come All Ye Faithful. And it talks one of the verses about him being the word. Well, I've always been a thinker. Now, when I say that, I don't mean I've been smart. I'm smart. I don't mean that. But I've been a thinker like I want things to be congruous. I want things to make sense. That's why I explain things to you. And uh, I don't leave things hanging. And I try to make things. I have a tendency to do that with my kids. And many, many, many years ago, I began to meditate on that. I know what the word, word means, is logos in and, and the original language, and it means a spoken word. The word was made flesh. But I can remember pastors and evangelists, and he was the word. But I couldn't get excited because it didn't make sense to me. Why are you excited? And I got to thinking about it many years ago. And what is a word? And then this blessed me. A word, listen, a word is how you communicate your thoughts. Your words are tools of communication. If you did not have words, you could not communicate. You can have feelings, you can have emotions, you can have a desire to communicate, but you need words. Can, 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 I, can I express it this way without doing violation to the text? Because this is exactly what it's saying. Jesus was God's communication of his thoughts to you. He was the word. He was God's 
word, not in, not the Bible, though he is that, but he, he was God's communication of who he is. And the Bible says, full of grace and truth. The Bible says, I think it's in John 1, 16 or 17 there, that, that Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace and truth. Listen, the law can, listen, the law can reveal your sin, but it cannot remove your sin. And Jesus came to reveal the Father's heart. And do you know what was in that heart? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And when you spend time with Jesus, when you spend time with the Word, the capital W-O-R-D, the incarnate Son of God, through His Word and through His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, You will become not just more honest in truth. You will become a person of the truth. And you will become a person of grace. Meeting with Daniel this this week and we were talking about some things. And I said, in Matthew 7 at the end, it says that Jesus spoke as those that had authority. He spoke as those that had authority. In Mark, it says the common people heard him gladly. I said, Daniel, have you ever thought about what it means to speak with authority? Because he spoke with authority. And I said, I've heard that dealt with in different ways. And the way that I've heard it dealt with and expressed that speaking with authority is pounding the pulpit. And I, I like preaching that pounds the pulpit, but that's not speaking with authority. That's pounding the pulpit. Speaking with authority is, is using gestures and being a gifted speaker. That's not speaking with authority. Speaking with authority is two things. Number one, it's what you say. It's in Matthew 7. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. He clarified some things. He cut through the the bushes and he said, no, no, that's not what that means. Here's what it means. And he simplified it. It's what you say. And I said, number two. Speaking with authority is how you say it. Remember, Jesus was filled with grace and truth in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. The Bible says that Jesus spake graciously. The word authority means influence. When you have authority, you have influence. Just because you have a title doesn't mean you have authority. It means you can boss the people under you. But when you're gone, just because I'm the father does not mean I have authority over my children. They don't have to listen to me. When I have authority over my children, I have influence over them because of what I say and how I say it. And because of my example and many other other things. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he came. Listen carefully. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a. He, he gave us the Bible, but he didn't just send a book. 
He came Himself as the Word, as a tool of communication to represent the Father's heart, the Son of God, God the Son, the Son of Man. Living in total dependence upon God, filled with the Holy Spirit. His birth was marked by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Spirit of God uh, came upon Mary. And I say this with utmost reverence and implanted the seed within her. And he lived his life in dependence upon the... He taught in the Holy Spirit. He preached in the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, the Bible says, He died in the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the Bible says, When he ascended to heaven, he ascended in the Holy Spirit. And then when he came back to the earth and he taught, even after... He had ascended and he taught. He taught again in the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did had the touch of the Holy Spirit upon him. Even though he was God, a very God. But everything he did was in dependence upon the Father. He had submitted himself to his Father's will and, listen, submitted himself to the Holy Spirit. He didn't know what his next steps were. Why do you think he prayed every day? Why do you think he read the scriptures? He was praying for direction, just like you do. He suffered like you do. He, he lived the way that you do. When our Lord was on the cross, he felt and experienced pain and suffering. And I talked about his nerves I talked about the crown of thorns in his body. But this so touched me as I was preparing this in recent weeks. And, but the greatest suffering he had was not in his body, it was in his soul. In Matthew 27, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could endure the physical suffering, but listen carefully. Are you listening? It was a loneliness. It was a separation. Now, I'm old, I'm old enough to, to make this statement. You're not listening to a kid. The, the worst suffering is not physical, it's emotional. And I've had some physical suffering, and I don't like it. But the worst suffering is emotional. And I want you to listen carefully. This will help you, some of you. This morning, as, as, uh, as I was getting ready, I, most every morning I listen to music. And the music, some songs were playing about this very th- thing. I, I didn't select them. They just came on. God put them on, I guess. About God ministering to people. And their emotional suffering. God will help you in your physical By the way, physical suffering will lead to emotional suffering. Loneliness. You know, there, there, there are times you suffer alone. And I know, well, you're never supposed to suffer alone. You, you bring a team along. Tell your wife. Tell, yeah, yeah, okay, I agree with all that. But there are times you suffer alone. You have a Gethsemane. 
and your parents can't help you, your husband can't help you, your wife can't help you, your best friends can't help you, it's just you and God. But Jesus can help you. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then says Jesus unto them, to his friends. I'm going to misquote it. My body is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. It's not what he said. To my soul. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Those two words, exceeding sorrowful, do you know what it means? It means I'm depressed. It's the night before he's to be crucified. And you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about becoming sin, being separated, the price he's going to have to pay. And the encroachment of the enemy upon his soul. The Bible says God sent an angel to minister unto him. And when he says, even unto death, here's what I believe. I think, I think he meant this. I'm not even going to get to the cross. Remember, he sweat drops of blood. That's been proven in history. People, humans have done that because of the stress. What are you going through today, physically or emotionally, that is just taking a toll on you? Our Lord has been there. Our Lord has been there. In Isaiah 53, you know, it's all over Isaiah 53. For it pleased the Lord, Almighty God. The word please doesn't mean he delighted. It means he was satisfied. He was satisfied with the, with the, that the, the law's demands were met. The father suffered with his son. The Bible says he sent his son. And it pleased him. He was satisfied to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make... And here it is. Are you paying attention? His soul an offering for sin. Not only did his body suffer, but his soul suffered. The entirety of his being, not just externally, but internally. I remember uh, going through a season of depression, and I couldn't sleep, and I didn't understand that cortisol was coursing through. You know, you're under stress, and your body produces cortisol, and you can't sleep. And so I would listen to songs to help me. Tony Ellenberg had a song and that really helped me in that season. And talked about going to the cross. And I would listen to that song over and over and over again. And so that helped you. I bet you were just smiling and, and hitting the bed. No, I wept. And I wept. And now, I send it to my children and my friends. And I send it to my sister. The Lord Jesus Christ had 
a Gethsemane and a Calvary. Where he exacted a toll upon his body and his soul. And some of you are going to, uh, through a, uh, a Gethsemane of sorts, your own Calvary. Don't waste it. I think at Psalm 84, it talks about us walking through a valley and and it's it's Baca, it's a valley of tears. And he says, make your valley of tears a well. Make it a well where other people can find nourishment. I love the line in the song, My Savior's Love, we sang it a few weeks ago. He took my sins. And we rejoice in that. We better because it's our doorway to heaven. He took my sins and my sorrows. And he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. Some of you, some of you are going through some alone times. You, you need to get with the Lord. Because he, he understands you. I mean, he's been there. He not only has the scars, he doesn't have scars, he has open wounds. And he he meets you in those moments. Again, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, He, the Father, shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied that the demands of the law were paid. The Father shall see the Son's travail of his soul. The word travail there means the toil and the trouble and the labor. Now, we're not Jesus. We don't have to, we're not going to pay for our sins. He did that. But I'm going to tell you, your soul is going to travail, it's going to labor, it's going to be seasons. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he had poured out his soul. Are you getting this? We talk about the physical death of Jesus, and the Bible as much highlights him pouring out his soul, the travail of his soul. The word pour out there means to, to fully empty, like you fully empty a pitcher. It means to lay bare. And on Calvary, listen, he gave it all. Sometimes you, you, you pour out your soul to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 53, <clears throat> verses 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgress means a willing sin. You know what you're doing. You sin on purpose. He was bruised for our iniquities, our sin nature, our moral transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him with his stripes, with his wounds we are healed. 
But I want you to go back to verse 4. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He not only carried your sins and your iniquities and your transgressions, but He carried your griefs and your sorrows. And you know why He did? He did that when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's an aloneness in this. You see, if you just get the substitutionary death of Jesus applied to your sins but not to your soul, you're going to miss some things. He died for everything. For your sinful account, He he died for the inequities that sin does to your soul. If the payment of sin requires such an awful punishment, then Satan is going to try to change our beliefs about this and doctrine. You know, the word shepherd in the Bible means to feed. The shepherd feeds, but the second thing a shepherd does is he protects. He protects the church from false doctrine. There's a song that we sing uh, in our church. It's well known in Christ alone. Here are the lyrics uh, are in one verse. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. And did you get it? Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what these texts I've been giving you teach us. That Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our disobedience. He was our substitute. I remember when this happened. In fact, I looked it up in August of nine years ago. 2013, and there was an article I'm going to quote. I don't like to read things to you, but I have to. It won't take long. It made it all the way to USA Today. It's from something that happened in the state of Alabama. And I'll read it to you. Would you listen? Just give your attention. This is important. This is not the shepherd feeding. This is a shepherd warning. Some Christians warn that emphasizing these doctrines, the substitutionary death of Jesus may have the unintended consequence of turning God into an angry deity who had to be appeased by shedding Jesus' blood. That's the view taken by the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song. The committee removed the hymn in Christ alone from the new Presbyterian Church, USA. There are two groups, those USA and the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, which is a very conservative USA is very liberal, and they removed the hymn. After the song's co-authors, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty, refused to change a line about God's wrath being satisfied. Now, there's no surprise there, but, but listen carefully. Bob Terry, the editor of the Alabama Baptist newspaper, stepped into a theological landmine when he wrote an editorial <clears throat> saying the Presbyterians got it right. Terry says he believes Jesus' death paid the price for sin, but the song's lyrics went too far. 
By the way, this guy graduated from Southern Seminary, and he continued writing for the Alabama Baptist through uh, 2018 or 19 at the same position five or six years after he did this. Unbelievable. Terry says he believes that Jesus' death paid the price for sin, but the song's lyrics went too far. He said, some, here's what he said, Sometimes Christians carelessly make God out to be some kind of ogre whose angry wrath overflowed until the innocent Jesus suffered enough to calm him down. No, the Father sent the Son. This man has a, this man has a Ph.D. from a seminary. Incredible. Not in a good incredible. That editorial, which ran in early August, touched a nerve. In blogs, tweets, letters to the editor, and phone calls, angry Baptist readers accused Terry of being theological liberal and abandoning the Bible, which he is on both accounts. Some wanted him fired. He should have been. In an unusual move, the president of the Alabama Baptist State Convention and the executive director of the Alabama Baptist State Board of Missions issued a statement criticizing the editorial. As Alabama Baptists seek to be true to Scripture, we affirm the essential and historic Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He opened up a Pandora's box. John Thweet, he was a pastor in another, another city here, he said, I don't think he thought things through. Okay. Obviously, it was, anyhow. Thweet is a fan of the song, Christ Alone. He said he couldn't understand why anyone would want to change it. Listen to this. The song's original lyrics say that as Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. The Presbyterian committee wanted to change that till the love of God was magnified. To remove that line would gut the gospel. And it would. You have no gospel. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, agreed. He said, there is no contradiction between God's love and God's wrath. And that's true. You see both at the cross. Both are needed to deal with human sin. That's why he believes penal or judicial substitutionary atonement is essential. Critics that want to change in Christ alone to remove the line about God's wrath have bad theology, Moeller said. It reveals deeper problems with what they believe about atonement. Moeller also gave context also on why judicial substitutionary atonement matters to Southern Baptists. It was one of the issues that led to the conservative resurgence or fundamental takeover among Southern Baptists in the 80s and 90s when seminary professors began criticizing substitutionary atonement, leading to full-blown questions about biblical inerrancy. And I have more in my sermon. I'm not going to finish. I'm going to stop there. Not a good place to stop. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. But the Bible says also he carried our sorrows and our griefs. And he died for me. And when he hung there, the shortest thing he said was, I'm thirsty. And we'll look at this in a fuller picture
next week. But he was he he died just right after this. He wasn't saying, "I just need some water." It is a picture of the entirety of his suffering, of his physical suffering, of his thirst, of being disconnected with God for those three hours, of what he went through physically, emotionally, and everything. All that I have, all that I, listen carefully, all that I have is Jesus. But all that I need is Jesus. But you'll never find out that he's all that you need until he's all that you have. Have you ever trusted him? Have you ever come to him and said, Jesus, I I want you to be my savior. I give you everything that I have. I repent of my sin. I, I bring all of my sins, my brokenness. I just give it to you. I, I, I can't do this. I can't live this life. I'm, I want you to save me. And maybe you're here. You've trusted him as your savior. But you're frustrated. Because you've hit some impasses. Because this thing of being a Christian is not easy. You said, well, preacher, I'm having to suffer. And, and I'm going through some things that I don't understand. Listen, God suffered. When he gave his son, Jesus suffered. God is not fair. He wasn't even fair to himself when he gave his son. It's not about being fair right now. Justice, God is just. Justice is not fair. One of the great lies today is about equity and fairness. God is not fair, but he's just. He always does right. And when you submit to that, that God is just and he's good, you can take it and say, God, I need you to shape my life. And and I just come to you and and allow you to, to work in me and through me and take all of this broken stuff and help me. Would you bow your heads with me today?